Hello, and welcome back to another episode of Open Floor. I am Andrew Sharp, and on the other line, from the Washington Post, fresh off a week of island hopping in Hawaii, Ben Golliver. What's up, man? Not too much, Andrew. Have you ever really sat down and pondered the magic of a sunrise? Uh, I haven't. That's not a problem. Don't worry. I'm not <laughs> judging you. There was no wrong answers to that question. I'll be honest. Until going to Hawaii, I had never really sat down and pondered the magic of a sunrise either. Okay. And look, I just get that big spiel about London. When you go there, go see the clock. You know, when you go to Paris, you know, make sure you see the Eiffel Tower and so forth. Mm-hmm. And everyone says about Hawaii, the sun hits different. You've got to just, you know, take advantage of the incredible sunshine they've got going on down there. So I said, that makes total sense. You're also benefiting from the time zone, so it's easier to wake up in the morning. As you know, I'm not really a morning person. We've had a few arguments about uh, scheduling over the years based on uh, early morning time zones. But in Hawaii, everybody just lives on Kobe time because they're so far behind the rest of the world. <laughs> right. No, First, by the fir- way, I can confirm that you are not a morning person and not a fun person to podcast when it's like 8 a.m. Golliver time. Uh, and I will add only as far as sunrise is concerned, it just never has really seemed worth it to me. And I watched you meticulously documented your entire trip to Hawaii. I appreciate that. Doing it for the gram as always And I saw that one day when you woke up at like 4.30 in the morning. And while I was jealous of like a lot of things you did in Hawaii, you were out there swimming with turtles. You had beautiful sunsets every single night. You were taking helicopter tours. I was not at all jealous when you were sitting there at 4.30 a.m. saying like, it's Kobe hours, here we go. Well, a couple of things. First of all, you're right. I approached Hawaii like I wanted to be basically in a cash money video. That was my goal. We had the choppers. (laughs) (laughs) We had the Escalade. It was great. But um, you're dead wrong about the sunrise. And hear me out, okay? Because look, for years... I've been a sunsets man, you know, but I've been sunrise curious. You know, I'm always just kind of talking to these legit photographers and they're like, yo, sunsets are cool. Sunsets are sort of like the Eastern Conference All-Stars. But if you want to see the real deal, (laughs) go to the sunrises. That's where the true talent is. That's the Western Conference All-Star. And the whole time I've been like, that does sound great, but it's way too early. So I have the benefit of these time zones. So I go out there and make the most of it. I'm rambling around this like dusty road at like four o'clock in the morning. It's pitch black. All of a sudden I see all these cars that are like on their side upturned, just like rusty old cars just sitting there. I'm like, maybe I just stumbled upon somebody's uh, encampment. Who knows? Kept going, find a little path to the river. I'm like, you know, waist deep in brush. I was ready for my big sunrise moment. And I'll say this, Andrew. I did a lot of thinking out there. It was a beautiful place. You've got the ocean, you've got the rocks. Uh, You know, you're you're looking out eastward and just sort of like waiting for the moment of truth. But there's so many life lessons to be taken uh, from sunrises. First of all, like you're saying, you got to show up early. You got to put in the work. Second of all, to me, the true magic of a sunrise comes not from the sun, but from the light. That's a subtle difference. But if you stare Mm. right at the sunshine, you will go blind, Andrew. 
And if you point your camera right at the sun, you're gonna get these little green reflective dots that just totally ruin your pictures. So what you've gotta do is not confuse cause and effect. You've gotta zoom out a little bit. You've gotta see where that light is radiating. You've gotta follow it across the rocks. You've gotta see the outlines of the clouds and the birds in the air. You've gotta see the reflection off the green uh, leafy plants that you're standing waist deep in to really get the true essence of a sunrise. Sure. Now. Uh, I bring all of this up because I think it really does help explain what happened in the FIBA World Cup, okay? And I've been doing a lot of reflecting on that experience <laughs> here over the last couple of weeks. But first of all, I mean, to properly appreciate the sunrise, you've got to show up and be there. We had a lot of USA players sleeping through the whole thing. Devin Booker, De'Aaron Fox, those guys did not show up. They were not available. It was a huge problem. We talked about it for a month. But that was not the only problem. On the court, what I think you saw from the team, a lot of staring at the sunshine, Andrew, a lot of Kemba Walker dribbling, a lot of Donovan Mitchell dribbling, a lot of guys who couldn't really get to the basket and wound up kind of settling on the outside of the offense and really trying to put too much on their own shoulders. You never got that radiant light that always comes through (laughs) when the ball moves, when the bodies move, when you create great shots. And you know who did have it, have it, by the way? Who's that? Spain. Spain nailed the sunrise start to finish. First of all, total commitment. Marcus Saul, who had a longer season than Marcus Saul, midseason trade, goes deep into the playoffs, wins a championship, immediately turns around uh, you know, for Spain. He's completely committed, but it's not just him. Ricky Rubio, teammates with Devin Booker. New coach, new franchise for him. He could be at home acclimating to whatever's going to happen in Phoenix next season. Nope, he showed up. He wins MVP. Rudy Fernandez is about as famous as you can get in Spain. He showed up. He played again. He's been doing it for the better part of a decade. Guys like Victor Claver, Sergio Yule, they're older than 30 years old. These guys are too old to be in the World Cup, according to the NBA, right? We don't ever send anybody who's over 30. That would be crazy. These guys show up. They play great together. They move the basketball brilliantly. I mean, it was just a radiant offensive performance. You've got Marcus Saul coming off these high screener rolls, pirouetting through the paint, 270 degrees, kicking it out to wide open shooters. They're banging the threes. And then defensively, they're all completely engaged, locked in. They're seeing the bigger picture just like you have to to enjoy a sunrise, Andrew. It was brilliant. So I guess, you know, it's been like a week here of me ruminating about the FIBA World Cup. And I think that the lesson for USA basketball, and I don't say this as a hater, I say this as completely constructive criticism, as someone who follows the program passionately and has for decades, not good enough. And not only not good enough, an embarrassment. There is no explanation for USA basketball to finish seventh in an international tournament. Recruiting players is part of the game. You have to have the guys show up, whatever it takes. Uh, You know, you could say there's failures on the court, but there was a failure of a culture to keep these guys invested. There was a failure of a recruitment effort to get the top players to show up. Spain proved that that's the difference between taking gold, having a brilliant sunrise and sleeping in and missing the whole thing. And so to me, I think, you know, I heard Greg Popovich stand up for his players. I appreciate him for doing that. Uh, I also read, I think Brian Windhorst wrote that, you know, Popovich kind of bailed from a late night meeting because he was so frustrated uh, after the losses. And look, 
you should be frustrated and you should feel the heat from the media. And one thing I am not here for at all is media members who are trying to give these guys passes for, for uh, oh, they didn't have the right guys. This isn't the same thing as the early 2000s, whatever. A loss is a loss. A win is a win. USA basketball needs to be better. And it's not just about Steph Curry stepping in here as the white knight to save things next summer. Uh-huh. I think they need a thorough evaluation process. Uh, Dr. Colangelo, <clears throat> Greg Popovich, they need to look within and fix this thing, sort this thing out. This cannot happen again. And it's our duty to call them out for what was not nearly good enough on the court. Wow. Okay. A lot there. Captain Accountability is back from vacation and he has spoken. Um yeah, I don't know. I mean, first of all, to stick with sunsets for a second, or excuse me, sunrises, I uh, I hear what you're saying. I still, you haven't necessarily sold me that the juice is worth the squeeze on that one. I enjoy the occasional sunrise when I've been up working all night, and then I kind of stumble out in a daze and look over, and it's like, oh, there's the sunrise. The idea of waking up two or three hours early has never made that much sense to me. One thing I do really love about uh, sunsets and sunrises in general, though, is just like it's sort of what you described. If you're trying to take a picture, you can never properly capture how cool it is. Um, And I kind of like that there are certain things in life that can't be documented on iPhones. It's like one of the few things that we have as sort of to to insulate us from like the uh, technology takeover in our lives. Um, you may feel differently about that as sort of an Instagram no. ambassador. I just think it's a great challenge. And like getting up, it's part of the adventure. <laughs> you're Look, I couldn't do it. it. I like it. Look, I, I couldn't do it every single day. But man, when you're watching that first pre-sunlight, right, where it's just like starting to crack above the horizon, you're starting to hear the roosters, you know, making a little bit of noise in the bushes, you know, everyone's sort of waking up for their day. That's magical, man. And the light, it just... I mean, it's ethereal. Like it doesn't really feel like it's actually happening. You're constantly pinching yourself uh, in the moment saying, wow, is this, you know, am I really in it? And maybe not every sunrise is built the same, but I'm just saying like there are some that are absolutely worth it. Mm -hmm. If you ever go to Hawaii, you should make time for it. You don't, don't be a slacker too. I mean, just show up, you know, you're kind of have this Devin Booker attitude about you towards (laughs) the sunrises. It really bothers me. Okay. Okay. One day I'm going to make it to Hawaii. It's just too damn far from the East coast. I've never been able to justify the Hawaii move, but at some point in my life, I definitely will. And also, I mean, it's funny. You started off this phone call by saying, all right, you're going to have to bear with me at the top. Sometimes when you're in the middle of these monologues, I like to imagine someone who's new to open floor, who just is like checking out this NBA podcast and then tunes in to hear you kind of rhapsodizing about like the radiating light and and the proper technique for sunrise enjoyment um so shout out to that person anyone who's yeah, new you to know the what show. <laughs> i can guarantee you this that person enjoys it and you need to pay closer attention yeah absolutely you know be present in life wake up at five in the morning go to hawaii uh Enjoy nature's bounty as far as Team oh, but USA. But do you know what I'm saying, though? Team USA, they blew the sunrise and Spain nailed it. I mean, don't you agree? I don't know. I think it's unfair to hold American players to that standard because... Oh. No, no, look, look. It's just a whole different thing for, for someone like Marcus Saul, for someone like Sergio Yule, for someone like Rudy Fernandez. Like, 
those guys, I mean, half those guys aren't even in the NBA anymore. So it's not as as tough of an ask to ask them to play 82 games and then go play three months with the national team. Like, it's it's sort of a different situation that they're in. And then Marcus Gasol, I mean, he's a, a lifetime ambassador for Spanish basketball. It makes sense that he would play. It makes sense that someone like Jokic would play yeah. and go be the centerpiece of the Serbian national team. I still yeah, don't really so understand why he wasn't starting, but... But yeah. So maybe maybe we can go to some American chain stores. I don't know, Walmart or 7-Eleven. Where do I buy one of those lifetime ambassadors? I'm really looking for one of those, Andrew. I haven't seen one. I, I mean, they Spain bleeds the same blood we bleed, right? They they drink the same water we drink. Whatever happened to competition being universal and whatever happened to USA's basketball mission, which should be twofold, to dominate, to captivate. They went 0 for 2 in this tournament, right? If you were just some random casual fan showing up in China, really excited to see the best that basketball has to offer. Wow. Congratulations. They beat Poland for seventh. Give me a break. All right. I mean, that's fair to a point, but again, you're talking about Spain with a pool of maybe 10 players who are of the caliber that would make sense at like a FIBA international competition or the Olympics. Like who had a better roster? USA had a better roster. USA did have a better roster. That that's the so criticism I agree with. I don't agree that like we have an entire generation of American players who are slacking off. I think you can make that criticism of maybe Devin Booker and like a handful of others who clearly could have benefited from the experience. But uh, I'm not going to knock some of our elite guys for not going over there because it's just a different deal. America has a pool of 60 players and should be able to field a gold medal well, team even without the best players in the field. So I just hope Jerry Colangelo sends you a seventh place medal because it sounds like you're just <laughs> fine with it. I mean, unbelievable. I'm not fine with it. I really am not. And, and that's where I agree with you. You know, we got this question from Tom, who is Australian, and said... Why is everyone saying USA's losses in the FIBA World Cup aren't surprising? Every single player is at worst an NBA rotation guy. Is this display showing that supreme NBA talent is really only the top 20 or 30 guys? Or were their problems more of a chemistry thing? And um, I think that question is harder to answer. Like it's, it's not that our team just sucked across the board. But I do think that what we saw was uh, a lack of like top-end talent. I think Tatum might have been the guy, but then they just lacked any sort of creator beyond Kemba Walker, and uh, and those limits became pretty much fatal <laughs> along the way. Like They just couldn't score, and it was, it was kind of amazing to watch how overwhelmed they became in some of these games. No, it's a really good point. I mean, I I see a few different flaws uh, from this team, kind of like looking back in hindsight. Some of them you could kind of tell were bubbling as the exhibition, uh, you know, series went on. Mm -hmm. Uh, But some of them kind of popped out during the pressure moments. I mean, there's no question they needed more creators and that they never really established that like pecking order of like, here's exactly what we're going to do in tight moments. Here's sort of who we trust. And uh, so that was an issue. They were also very reliant upon their three-point shooting in the exhibition series, and they shot really well. I mean, like in the exhibition against Spain in Anaheim, uh, they shot the lights out, and I think that could have potentially given them a false confidence. 
Another issue to me that I saw is I think they felt the pressure. I think they heard the outside voices saying, you guys are a C team. And I think they let that get to them a little bit. Yeah. I understand they played hard at times during that tournament and they had some pretty gutsy moments, including that game, uh, you know, that came like right down to the wire. I believe it was against Turkey. Turkey, sure. Uh, But this, yeah, this wasn't a team that I really thought truly was going completely all out, like trying to do anything they possibly could to overachieve and to scrap and to beat guys to me. Uh, you know, they rolled over a little bit at times. And frankly, I was embarrassed on their behalf to watch the start of that Serbia game where they get down huge just right off the bat. I understand it's difficult to get up in that moment when you've already, you know, seen your gold medal shot go. But come on, like you've got to do better than that. And this is a program that has preached national pride, 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 pride since the start of the Coach K era, right? They were preaching it again this summer. I didn't necessarily see the pride, especially in that one game. Um, So to me, those were some of the issues that they were facing. Uh, Talent was definitely an issue too. There's no doubt. I mean, you know, the way that Gobert handled them, uh, you know, the way that they didn't have, you know, just a takeover guy, whether it's Harden or Kyrie late, uh, that could have made the difference in this tournament, uh, no question. Mm-hmm. Uh, but to me, they did not maximize their potential. There's no way you could tell me that this group of you know nice guys who nobody wants to rip because they're all friendly guys. No one wants to rip Popovich. He's a coaching legend. Yeah. You know, no one wants to ri- uh, rip Jerry Colangelo. He's a guy who has you know invested an incredible amount of time in sort of you know saving this program from itself. You know, 15 years ago. But those guys know it just as well as we know it. That was not good enough. They have to go back to the drawing board. Yeah, I mean, the Popovich point is interesting. I will be the first one to admit I'm not a coaching expert. I feel like there are a lot of kind of armchair coaches around the NBA media and NBA Twitter. And, oh, like who? <laughs> well, <laughs> there are a lot. I'm not going to be kidding. out there breaking down plays and you know breaking down film. I would be very curious to hear what some real coaches thought of the way Popovich managed that talent, the way he selected that team, because I do think that there's probably plenty of room to second guess some of the decisions that were made along the way. Um, And that was one element of the story. And it's true that we shouldn't sort of like underplay that um it does really well, suck for Andrew, Popovich I, I think this yeah. is something he clearly cared about and has for a long time and took really seriously so it's disappointing that he is the guy of all the pl- of all the coaches over the last 20 years it's like him and Larry Brown to just kind of crash and burn and I think it'll be cool to see him get another opportunity in 2020. No question and look I obviously revere him and everything that he's done for the last two decades, right? But he is not above criticism. And I think when you look at it, one thing you you told me not too long ago when you were talking about the University of North Carolina is just like you expressed a lot of frustration in what they're doing from a recruiting standpoint, right? Mm -hmm. It's like, how is Duke getting all these one and done guys, right? I mean, that is a part of this job with USA basketball, right? And I mean, I don't know if Popovich just didn't have the connections. I don't know if he had certain principles in terms of like, hey, I want guys who fit my style. So we're going to bring Derek White. Maybe we're going to put him over some guys maybe with bigger names. Um, You know, maybe he wasn't quite as accommodating in terms of playing styles as he potentially could have been. Maybe he just assumed guys would play because it was his first time running it. And he was caught by surprise when, you know, guy after guy, you know, bails on him. Mm -hmm. Um, Maybe he just viewed that as like Colangelo's job, right? But I think the coaching personality part matters because, you know, being around these guys in Vegas and LA, they were all business. I didn't see a lot of that Steve Kerr joy. I didn't see a lot of that esprit de corps. 
that was such a hallmark of the LeBron Carmelo era of USA basketball. Those guys were genuine friends. These were like lifetime bonds that they were building. You could tell that he really wanted to be around each other. And this group just kind of felt like strangers and they played like strangers. Yeah. I mean, I agree with that. And, and as far as the recruitment point, that's another situation where I, not to rehash something we talked about, like, I think it was six weeks ago, but FIBA holding this tournament a year before the Olympics makes it a lot tougher for Team USA to get buy-in from the best players because at that point you're asking for like an 18-month commitment from these guys to just play basketball straight through. And there are a lot of people who are like, whatever, they're playing basketball all the time regardless. And it's like, I don't know, man. I like If I had had the opportunity to go to China, I, I would not have been thrilled. <laughs> like I, I might have gone, but I would not have been like overjoyed about spending a month in China before we all get rolling for the NBA season. And so I certainly understand why plenty of NBA players, particularly those on contenders, would say, all right, you know what, I'm going to wait this out and we can revisit this when it's time for the Olympics next summer. Um, I hear you, but look, in life, there's always a shortcut. There's always an easy way out, you know? And so I think, come on, like, what are we really about here as a country? It's We're at this kind of gut check moment where do we want to be the best <laughs> basketball country in the world or not? I guess so. I don't know if it's that much of a gut check. I don't think anybody questions that America is the best country or the best basketball country in the world. Um, well, you could have fooled me watching that tournament. And I'll say this. As much as I'm kind of ragging on USA basketball, I should be just as vociferous in bigging up what Spain did. Yeah. Watching Rudy Fernandez cool. take that trophy over his head with the confetti falling down around him. Watching Rubio, of all people, this kid who we first you know came to know as a baby-faced teenage phenomenon with the national team, right? All the way growing up, he, he can grow a beard, you know, him and Tatum, the struggle beards. Uh here he is winning MVP on that level, playing you know sensational basketball in the gold medal game. Here's Marcus Gasol, like you said, career-defining triumph of a summer for him. Mm-hmm. Uh, those are a lot of really, really, really good stories. And I just tip my hat to those guys for wanting to play. Same deal with uh, Scola in Argentina. They had a really magical run through the tournament. And I think, look, we can kill these guys for not playing the American guys. At the same time and in the same breath, we should be saying hats off to these other guys who are willing to go out there, compete for pride, for country, to spread the good of the game. I love seeing that. Yeah, um, I'm with that. I agree with all those messages. And three final thoughts from me, because while I'm not necessarily what I would consider a coaching expert, I do feel like I've got a pretty good sense for players. And ultimately, this, this tournament validated what we were talking about a few weeks ago, When you look at this Team USA roster, my primary takeaway from all of this is that this is the first time in my lifetime that there are no clear stars waiting to take over in the NBA, at least clear American stars, because we've got Giannis, we've got Embiid, we've got Luka, but there are no guys who are like definitely next up in the NBA as, as far as the Americans are concerned. Tatum didn't really look like he had it in the games we saw. Donovan Mitchell had a great first three quarters against France, but he was uneven uh, throughout most of the tournament. 
And, uh, and I think that's really interesting. And it's one of those things where you don't want to read too much into it. It could just be a generational blip, but particularly on the, on the wings, as I wrote about a few weeks ago, like it's, it's slim pickings for the Americans. And I'm not sure why, I'm not sure how much it means, but this tournament was kind of a microcosm of all that and sort of the uncertainty that we're going to be headed toward in the 2020s, which I think is a cool thing. Like when you look at the point guard pecking order for the next generation, you got Jamal Murray, you got Trey Young, you got De'Aaron Fox, um, you got uh, Donovan Mitchell. Like it's going to be really interesting to see how that hierarchy kind of sorts itself out over the next five or six years, because there's no clear favorite to kind of rule the point guard roost at this point. Yeah, great point on Trey Young, man. I would have loved to see him have had a higher profile role within this group during the Vegas uh, minicamp. He was great in the scrimmages. I mean, yeah. really running things. They could have used his creation. I understand he's young. I understand the defensive limitations, but you can't tell me they couldn't have found some minutes for him in this tournament too. So um, I agree with all the points that you just made. I mean, there's no doubt. And um, was that number one or did you have two more? I do have two more, and this this is more in line with my uh, claimed expertise here. I would like to revisit two long-running arguments, um, one longer than the other. But first, the Kemba Kyrie discussion from earlier this summer. I believe you adopted the persona of a highway patrol officer to lecture me when I said that Kyrie has a set of skills that might give him an advantage over Kemba Walker in high leverage situations. And you said I was full of nonsense. And uh, I just want to say that this tournament is what I was talking about as far as some of Kemba's limitations in terms of creating at the end of games when teams are keyed on him. And again, I don't even know if it's Kemba's fault. He's just small, and that makes him easier to guard in some of these bigger moments. No, it definitely seems like you're misconstruing what I said. That's fine. I'm not <laughs> going to rehash. Uh, here's here's what I'd say. I think this tournament kind of popped some holes in some of the pro-Kemba narratives that we saw emanating from you know the pro-Boston media, which just can't help itself, which obviously includes you too. But, of course. Go uh, Celtics. Uh he has a very good personality, but he doesn't have that takeover. I'm going to carry you through, you know, to playoff success type personality and uh, and game. Okay. Frankly, you know, yeah. like I think he's he's a very good point guard. He's not a great point guard, and there's no question that if you just take Kemba Walker off that team and you plug Kyrie Irving into that team, um, they're better based on the other talent. Uh, right. that they had available to them. I think that's pretty self-explanatory. I mean, to me, I still think in a vacuum, Kyrie Irving is a better player uh, than Kemba Walker. Now, that doesn't necessarily mean that uh, Kemba's going to get worse results in Boston because of you know all the talent that Kyrie clearly squandered last year uh, mm-hmm. with that situation. But uh, you know, that's not really, you know, here nor there. I think for this purposes, if they could have traded Kemba for Kyrie on that specific team, they would have done it. Yeah. Um, okay. I agree with all that. And then the, the second point that I wanted to raise, uh, one of my predominant takeaways from this team USA experience was sort of a reality check with where we are and what we should expect from Chris Middleton going forward. And, um, I'm wondering what you saw from Chris Middleton, because in terms of what Team USA needed, 
he sort of he was one of the only guys who checked all the boxes. He can create a little bit, he can shoot a little bit, he can handle a little bit, and the and the Americans needed a wing who could do all those things. And yet he was just so ordinary for so much of his time out there on the floor. And to me, that's a little bit of a red flag in terms of what he's capable of in Milwaukee. And again, I think like all this stuff is most useful as just kind of a microcosm of where the NBA is. And uh, I did come away a little bit concerned about where we're headed with Middleton. Yeah, I mean, especially with the contract. I mean, I do think that that one has a chance to age very poorly a year or two from now, uh, mm-hmm. you know, just depending on how things are working. And Milwaukee could be in a situation where it's like they're trying to do everything they can to keep Giannis, but that Middleton contract is just kind of sitting on their books, like just, you know, eating up flexibility and a huge chunk of change. Um, I think with Middleton, he is a very, very flexible player who works with lots of different types of players. That's one of his big values. Yeah. But if you want him to look... Uh, as good as he could possibly look, it requires devoting a lot of percentage uh, possessions to him where he's just sort of like backing down in the mid post and going to his turnarounds. Like that's kind of how he wants to play, right? And there was tension between him and Bud last year about, hey, look, man, like we're not going to play that way. Like this whole mid-range stuff, like you just got to cut that out. You're either going to like... Uh, you know, get to play make a little bit with the ball from the perimeter, or you're going to be shooting threes from the wing. Like that's who you are now. And he pushed back a little bit on that. And there was a little bit of, you know, tension at one point, I think he got benched in a fourth quarter because he was kind of, you know, dragging on defense and, uh, you know, Bud wasn't pleased with his overall buy-in. And I think it was kind of a similar deal with USA basketball where, you don't want to devote your offense to like the Chris Middleton takeover game, right? Because right. that's probably not going to be good enough to beat these high-level international teams. But at the same time, if you just turn him into a spot-up shooter and it's like, all right, Kemba's going to dribble, and then every once in a while, you know, you're going to be asked to, you know, hit a catch-and-shoot three and maybe, you know, drive like twice a quarter, you're not really going to be putting him in a position to really look phenomenal because he doesn't have that crazy athleticism and those kinds of uh, gifts where he can just blow by people, jump over people, and so forth. So uh, I don't want to excuse him entirely. I just think that he was one element of an offense that was underperforming. I definitely expected a little bit better from him mm-hmm. um, just because I'm you know, a fairly big fan of his. But I'm also getting a little bit nervous too because guys with his profile, like they don't stay stars that deep into their thirties. Right. Right. Like they're, they're useful players. It's like that Joe Johnson where you can kind of like hang around and like be helpful and like pretty deep into his thirties. But is he still like a star level, like a number two level guy? And I'm not sure that's going to be Chris Middleton for too much longer. Yeah. And that's exactly what I am concerned about is, is basically I've always liked Chris Middleton. You and I go back and forth on the pod. Like I, I am pro Chris Middleton as a valuable, like winning player who can contribute to a title team. I do not think he could ever be the second best player on a title team. And, um, and right now, the athleticism is, is a little bit concerning just in terms of where he's at. Um, and he's still relatively young. I believe he's 28 years old. So, so we'll see. But um, I'm just glad he showed up, though. I mean, that's the thing. Like, and- yeah. I'm trying to be soft in my criticism of him because at least he showed up and kind of the same deal with Kemba. Like if you really wanted to go after Kemba, you know, it's like you could put this all on his shoulders. He had the ball the most like late game offense was pretty dicey in a couple of those games. I mean, you could really kill him for it, but at least he showed up. And that's more than we could say for a lot of their peers uh, on that all-star level. Yeah. Well, and one more point from Mark. 
He asks us to compare Olympic Mellow and Patty Thrills Mills. Also, he says, go Boomers. I love the Boomers at every single international competition. Excited to watch them next summer. I hope Ben Simmons plays. Uh, But I include that, Ben, because this team could have used Olympic Mellow, okay? I understand that's controversial to say out loud. And if everybody's going to be like, oh, you're just a hot take guy. You're one of those people who watches all the workout videos and takes them seriously. Fuck that, all right? USA needed someone who could create. They needed someone who could be there at the end of games and know how to handle himself. Melo wanted to play. He could have been that guy. He could have given this team a solid 10 to 15 minutes in some of these games. He could have helped steady the ship as things were kind of collapsing around them. And instead, this team decided to bet on Joe Harris and Jalen Brown. And, like, I don't understand it, okay? Melo, particularly given the sacrifices that he has made over the last 12 years for the USA basketball program, earned the right to play if he wanted to play. I don't understand what statement they were trying to make by saying, no, we're ready to turn the page here. Um, and I thought it was well, funny. Like, well, look, watching some of these games, he genuinely could have helped. It's a hot take, but it's a take I I actually believe. We had such a good podcast going, too. I think the <laughs> statement the statement they made by leaving Mello off uh-huh. is that they wanted to beat Poland for seventh, right? Because <laughs> Mello, running the offense through this current version of Mello would be a great way to lose to Poland. And I'm just going to leave it at that. Everything that you were saying about the straw man, you know, criticizing you of looking at the videos too much and all that, that part was right. Okay, I agree oh, with all man. of it. Look. You got to watch how he played the last time he was on an NBA court. I mean, people really want to believe in Mello. And I understand because he had a great, you know, swagger about him earlier in his career. His peak was pretty fun to watch. He has a very entertaining player. It's a style of play and just a nostalgic way about him too, where it's right. like the, the headbands, the turnarounds, it's just a different era. <laughs> you know, everybody can remember those baby blue powder, uh, uh, you know, Denver Nuggets jerseys, but come on, dude. Yeah. Now it's really this, it's Syracuse it's Mellow. There. Look, he taps directly into my nostalgia vein. I won't deny it, and I'm willing to go to some irrational places to defend Carmelo Anthony, and I thought it would have been nice to see him out there. You know, give him Brooke Lopez's spot. Give him Mason Plumlee's spot. Well, I don't let me know. ask you this. Let me what? ask you this. Along these same lines, Joe Johnson won MVP at the big three, and he was able Look. to turn that in. <laughs> Hold on. He was able to turn that into a contract with the Detroit Pistons, so he actually has some game left. Yeah. Could he have helped Team USA? I think he could definitely I, have helped Team USA more than Mello. Well, uh, yes, I think they both could have helped Team USA, which speaks to uh, some of the glaring weaknesses that were there all along with this roster. And and it's funny, like Mello and Joe Johnson are not world beaters by any means at this point. But the 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 clear flaw with this team is that they just lacked guys who were big creators who could get their own shot and and create offense for others and help bust some of these zones. And uh, so I guess it's a low bar. Let's put it that way. Okay, that's the reason someone like Joe Johnson or someone like Melo might have actually been able to help in this situation is that. Team USA was just kind of lost on the wing. but um. Yeah, look, bottom line, if we're trying to fix Team USA for the future, 
The answer is not Carmelo Anthony it and isn't. Joe Johnson. Look, the answer is Zion Williamson. Okay, we need to build a new young core for USA basketball. We need to have a superstar face uh, of that organization. The most qualified person right now, as you've laid out, there's not a lot of under 25 star power who are Americans. Mm-hmm. The best shot at getting a guy who can sort of have that LeBron-like magnetism where he gets everybody tuning in. He dominates and he captivates, like I said, should be the national goals for this program. It's Zion. And then he can start getting guys like John Morant and Jaron Jackson Jr. And all these guys are going to want to play uh, you know, on the Zion USA basketball team. I think they need to recruit like crazy to get him on the ne- the Olympic squad for next summer. Yeah. Uh, obviously, they need to go back to the LeBron well, too. I think that if you had a team with LeBron, Steph, and Zion, that's just a lights-out squad for Tokyo, and I think that would go a long way to kind of uh, regaining some momentum, some pride, some mystique uh, that USA Basketball should have. But uh, to me, like the long-term solution, like if we're talking like the next 10 years of USA Basketball, it needs to be built around Zion. Yeah, well, it would also be fun to see Kevin Durant perhaps use the Tokyo Olympics to kind of re-enter the basketball world. Um, don't do this. Don't do this, Andrew. It, You're trying to rush him back. Why are you I doing this I don't want to. to. Look, it, his health comes first. I'm just saying it would be kind of a fun stage for him to uh, to re-enter it would yeah. also be how like, but, fun would it be if he if he sprained his ankle just the exact same way that Tatum sprained his ankle? How fun would that be in next year's Olympics? Yeah, it wouldn't be. That fun. would be you, you got me there. Okay, that would um, be worse than watching the Pistons for a year with Root Canal Reggie. I mean, that would be. I would have to turn my television off if that happened. Yeah, well, way to go out on a limb. A KD injury at next year's Olympics would be a bad development for everyone. Uh, Paul George, if he breaks his leg again on Team USA, no one would be cheering for that. Um, I'm just saying, there's a risk factor to bringing him back early let's put kd in bubble wrap i saw some pictures of him trying on the nets jerseys today Uh no braces or anything and part of me was like pretty excited and part of me was like are we sure we can't film this in a wheelchair like what can we do (laughs) to just protect kevin from himself and keep this thing going slowly the other guys who could play over the next few or over next year I mean, Damian Lillard, like, you don't even have to to draw exclusively from the MVP pool. Like, Damian Lillard can play, but C.J. McCollum would have helped this team a lot. Bradley Beal would have helped this team a lot. Someone like Trey Young, someone like Zach Levine or D'Angelo Russell, like, get some of these guys who can actually shoot and guards who can actually create, and you're going to have a much higher baseline. And then obviously, if you get LeBron and AD, I feel like LeBron and AD are kind of a package deal for Team USA. And uh, But if you get them and Steph, I mean, the rest of the world is doomed. So we'll wait and see on all that. I still maintain that Carmelo Anthony should have a lifetime appointment on Team USA. If anything, just as sort of like the 12th man player coach, he can wear a captain's hat from like the whatever yacht Team USA is staying on. I would support all of it, uh, but either way, <laughs> USA basketball will bounce back in 2020. I don't think this is a crisis. Here's what I maintain. If they don't win gold next summer, everybody who's quiet this summer, who's giving them a pass this summer, doesn't get to be angry next summer because you're part of the problem. We need to be <laughs> holding USA basketball to a higher standard to understand that first is the only option here. And, you know, guys like you want to give them a pass and you're going to see what the results are, you know, hopefully, uh, you know, hopefully these stars do show up and, and take care of business. But if not, I hope you're looking in the mirror. 
Hey guys, what's up? This is Ben Golliver with a message from Mattress Firm. The only thing better than watching your team win is a perfect nap. And Mattress Firm's President's Day sale lets you get a king mattress for a queen price or a queen mattress for a twin price for savings of up to $600. And you can take home a free adjustable base with a qualifying purchase. But you have to hurry. The clock is ticking on this sale. It's ending soon. Isn't it time you saved and slept like a champion? Shop now. Mattressfirm.com. Mattressfirm.com for the President's Day sale. I will be. I promise you that. Uh, to keep it moving, though, Jonathan says... James Harden has been uncharacteristically vocal this summer, talking about his quote-unquote legendary game, his new shoe, and MVP snubbing, all of which, in my opinion, is doing him no good. It's not a good look to lose to a wounded Warriors squad, blame it on CP3, and then gripe about not winning the MVP. Meanwhile, Giannis is out here saying all the right things, preaching about championships or nothing and asking fans not to call him the MVP. If you were Harden's PR person, what would you be coaching him to say? So Ben, I cede the floor to you, our old friend, big game James here. Uh, What's your advice to him at this point? Could you be a little less condescending towards (laughs) one of the best basketball players in history? Um, big game, James, as you, you know, spit out your tobacco and discuss. My Look, favorite, man. Come on. Uh, first of all, I'm sure he doesn't have a PR person. I don't think he really rolls that way. I think he's just kind of, you know, says what's on his mind. Um, I think there's a little bit of confirmation bias going on from the questioner. I think there's a lot of people who just don't like James Harden. And every time he talks, it's very easy to say, hey, guess what? Uh, this angers me or I don't like him. Uh, I see a lot of overlap between how people have treated Kevin Durant these last couple of years. You know, after he made that decision to go to Golden State, it was just like everything he did was poison. Mm -hmm. I think it's the same deal with Harden. You know, everything he does basically is poison until he wins a title. I think he kind of gets that. And I think he's letting it go off his back. and He's just kind of saying what's on his mind. Uh, I don't have a problem with anything that he said this summer. I think beating the MVP drum he might have gone back to that well a little bit too often. I think he made his point, but he also gets at, you know he he gets interviewed a decent amount. He's trying to promote his shoe, so he's going to answer the questions uh, in those situations. Uh, I don't really hold that against him. I think he's wrong on the merits. I think Giannis was a deserving MVP. I thought Harden was a good MVP too. I think some of the arguments that he's been trying to use about oh well we were 14th in the Western Conference. I mean that's you know, just kind of baloney in terms of like how he tries to pitch it as his big turnaround story. So I might drop that one out. But to stand up for yourself and wanting to be the MVP, uh, to me, I don't see any problem with that. I wish more guys would do that. I think it adds to the overall conversation and the debate. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I think it's it's just honest. You know, all these guys want to win these awards. It's better when they, you know, stand up and say it. Uh, in terms of throwing CP3 under the bus, again, to me, that is better than lying. They started this summer lying, you know, <laughs> denying everything. Yes. Daryl Morey was in the Instagram comments saying, I'm not going to That's trade Chris Paul. It wasn't even like a no comment situation. This was brazen lying from everyone around the Rockets organization. Everyone who asked or, or was asked about CP3 and Chris was not only like, no, there's no, there's not that much there. Or this is all smoke, no fire. They were like, this is fake news. I don't know who's feeding you this fake information, but it's complete nonsense. 
those guys are fine. <laughs> and so I don't know. It's it's quite the 180 over the course of the summer. For sure. And look, I don't have a problem, or I do have a problem with the Rockets owner, Tillman Fertitta, kind of coming out and throwing Chris under the bus a little bit. Yeah. I don't think that's how you thank a player for, you know, two really good years Chris, of service to that organization. Dude, he was uh, excellent. For the for the vast majority of his time in Houston, Chris Paul was better than any teammate, like the Rockets ever could have paired with James Harden. Right. And he kind of did them a favor during the whole trade situation to like make that trade happen in the first place. Obviously it came back to his benefit with the contract later, but like he was a pretty good partner on and off the court for them. So I didn't like ownership and I don't think management has gone there, but if management were to go there, that would bother me. But I think, you know, a little honesty is, is the right thing to do here, especially because this whole thing now sets up as can James get along with Russell. Mm -hmm. That's the whole story for the Rockets not only this year, but they're already painting it as like a four-year window, right? James did not work out with Dwight. We could blame Dwight for that. James did not work out with Chris. We could blame Chris for that. James doesn't work out with Russell. Are we going to try to blame Russell for that? Or when does some of the spotlight start going back onto James, his style of play, uh, his leadership personality, uh, and all of those other intangibles? I think we've, we've already kind of reached that point. Yeah. Uh, I think it's it's good for him to defend, uh, defend himself in those situations, but... Uh, you know, the bullseye is on him. I think he gets that. And I, I don't have a problem with him talking, but I understand some people just don't like him. So they're going to complain. Uh, I would just encourage both the emailer and anyone else who's just sort of like anti-Harden, anti-Harden, anti-Harden. This guy's an incredibly creative player. He's pushing the sports in great directions. He's had some just phenomenal stats. Just if you're a pure analytics geek, like the stuff is off the charts, what he's doing. Right. Uh, I hope I hope people remember him 20 years from now in the proper way. I'm worried they won't. Yeah. Uh, well, that's it's certainly a well-founded worry. I, I hope that... I mean, I, I'm not particularly invested one way or the other, but he does need to succeed uh, in a big way, not necessarily with a title, but it would be cool to watch him have like a breakthrough performance in the playoffs that sort of silences some of these conversations. The one thing uh, I would add to what you said, I agree with you that I think crushing him for some of the MVP stuff is a little bit unfair. The, you know... One of the problems is that James Harden is just sort of a boring guy. There's not that much to ask him about in some of these interviews. So everyone who interviews him says, okay, so like MVP race, we could talk about that. What did you think about the MVP race? The one place where I would not necessarily criticize, but if I were answering this question and adopting the role of a, of a Harden advisor, what I would say is like, Look, you shouldn't even feel frustrated about the MVP. Like, it doesn't matter whether you won or lost the MVP. Your career is going to be decided by how far the Rockets can go in the playoffs and how you're able to perform on that stage. At this point, like, obviously the correct way to play it is to say what Giannis said and said, oh, I'm looking forward. I don't care about last year. We're looking to win a championship in Houston. So it's fine that he's answering honestly, but honestly, like he shouldn't feel that way. Like it, the, the playoff success is all that matters for his career and his legacy at this point. And the MVP stuff is just kind of nonsense. You know how I feel about generic praise, right? When uh -huh. people in the media just kind of like, you know, give the most like 
surface level, you know, pat on the back, just whoever it might be for whatever possible reason, right? Yeah. Like, I mean, that drives me up the wall. It's the same deal, though, with generic quotes from players. Anyone can say the right thing. That's like the easiest possible thing. Andrew, you're the MVP right now, okay? Uh-huh. You're trying to sell a sneaker. Uh, I'm your agent. How difficult is the conversation? Hey, you're going to go to a rally in Milwaukee. Uh, let's come up with something that the crowd will really like. <laughs> totally. Look, hey, for Andrew, all anyone you knows, th- you we think could you should be, be ghostwriting Giannis's entire career. I would, lo- I would love that job. Right. I'm just saying, do you think it'd be a good idea to be humble? Maybe we should come off humble in that situation. That'd be a good idea. People might like that. It's so easy to do that. And I don't think that we should be giving guys credit for doing that. No, no, Sometimes no. it's genuine. Sometimes it's not. What I'm saying is if you're a basketball fan, you should seek out truth. You should want to know how the players actually feel. I'm not saying you personally, Andrew. I'm right. just saying people in general. Having Giannis say, don't call me the MVP, I want to win another one, that's great. It's a good line. It does great on social media, but it's empty calories, right? James Harden saying, you know what? The voters screwed me. They hopped on the Giannis bandwagon early. They never left. And by the way, I was 31-7-7 in the playoffs. Eat that. That is what I want to hear (laughs) because that's true. (laughs) That's what James Harden believes, and we want to know these guys. Yeah, I mean, that's fair. I just think that... It's one of those things where we shouldn't applaud honesty without any skepticism either because the bottom line is Harden has put himself in the conversation among the best players in the world. He could be the very best player in the world, but he's not going to get there with another MVP regular season. He's going to get there by doing what he hasn't done thus far without belaboring the point. Go win in the playoffs. The, the, the door was wide open last year against the Warriors. And I think that's why it's a particularly rough look this summer. Is like they had a shot, uh, but they're going to have a shot again this year too. So that's where I would tell Harden to focus. Uh, but no, you know. I, and I hear you on that. But look, Harden was also, like you mentioned, very bro- boring earlier in his career, right? He's had. Yeah. Since he's really hit this MVP level, he's slowly come out of his shell. I actually remember the first interview I did with Harden when he was like first getting into the MVP conversation for real, like three or four years ago. And I was blown away because it was actually a good interview. And like my expectations were so low. I like I went in there just thinking I was going to get nothing. And I came out with like quotes I could actually use and build a story around. I was like, oh my God, this is great. Yeah. I would rather have this version than that version. And I'm saying every player in the world can be the boring version, you know? That's like the easiest thing that you could teach. It's the easiest thing to program. Um, And, you know, from that standpoint, I would love to see more of the real Giannis. You know, I would love to get mic'd up Giannis going after Bud in a huddle. Let's get that audio, you know? I guarantee you it's not going to (laughs) sound the same humble tone uh, as as we get, uh, you know, in certain situations when he's on stage. I would love to hear Giannis dogging out his teammates for missing uh, you know, defensive rotations. I promise you he's using a different tone of voice than he uses up there on that stage. And so I, I just think that, you know, the conversations just got a little bit perverted. You know, people are, uh, they bend over backwards praising generic stuff because it's, you know, it's bubble gum, it's popcorn, and they go after guys for being honest. And look, you're right. We should hold Harden accountable. Like he's entitled to his opinion. That doesn't mean we all have to agree with it. I'm just saying I'd rather hear it than not hear it. Yeah, and honestly, if I were him, I just wouldn't give a shit about whatever happened in the MVP race because the Warriors series would be a lot more important to me. 
uh, as far as looking back. And even if someone asked me that question, it would be like, well, for sure, whatever, man. No, um, my dream world would be him saying, "Hey, here's the seven things that I did wrong in that Warrior series, right? Yeah. And here, it's not just about oh, I didn't have enough talent or." You know, we we ran out of gas. The burden was too heavy on me. I did my job. I mean, to me, that is not the full truth, right? Because I think these top guys are so competitive, so thoughtful, and so smart about basketball. They have such a high basketball IQ yep. that it's not just Kevin Durant who can have these kinds of conversations where he wows you with his intricate knowledge, right? They hold that back from the media. And if you could say, what's the dream interview from James Harden? Well, it's him sitting down and saying, Let's go through some tape from game five and six against the yeah. Warriors. And Here's let's let's talk seeing. about what happened. Here's what I was seeing. Here's what I did wrong. Here's who let me down. Here's why I got mad at Chris. Here's what D'Antoni didn't do. Here's what he could have done. Here's which lineup worked. I mean, that's the stuff that I would love. I understand why guys hold that back. You know, there's competitive reasons for doing that. Um, there's also just ego reasons for doing that. Um, but, you know, I think anything that we get is a good thing. Um, I'm with you and it's a great point. It's something I think about from time to time. If there's one thing that I think a lot of us take for granted or, or certainly a lot of fans take for granted, it's just how smart the current generation of superstars are. I mean, they're basically all basketball savants. And I don't know if that's always been true, but it's definitely true today. And it's borne out in the quality of the league. Uh, Harden invented a new way to shoot a basketball. People have been shooting a basketball for more than 100 years. And he's got a sidestep left-footed three-pointer that no one has ever done previously. And he's hitting it consistently. That takes a certain type of genius. Yeah. Um, And uh, to return to your original point in all of this, Dwight Howard was the world's easiest scapegoat russell westbrook was as well chris paul has become a scapegoat for better or worse but the one thing and and look chris paul has is one of the more grading personalities in the entire nba according to a lot of people who have been around his teams over the years but i guarantee you that not all of his criticisms of harden were misplaced and so it's going to be interesting to see how seriously he takes any of that because I wrote this when they made the deal for Westbrook and everyone was sort of saying like how is Westbrook going to change can he adapt and make this work in Houston but like Harden still needs to adapt too and um we'll see how he does I mean the the, yeah. the West is I mean, going to be wide open line, for like, those guys if you had a friend who got divorced three times like you you would listen to him talk about his ex-wives to a point but mm-hmm. at some t- at some you know moment of the conversation you'd be like well I mean, do you bear any responsibility here? Like <laughs> Exactly, exactly. Three of them, like three times? Yeah, and I'm willing to believe that he bore almost no responsibility for the Dwight disaster because that's just sort of where Dwight's career was headed uh, uh, at that point. But um, some of these other situations are a little bit more complicated. And even the Dwight thing was probably more complicated. Uh, but uh, the jumping off that question, I was curious... Did you have any thoughts on the long-form Kevin Durant feature that ran in the Wall Street Journal? I believe it was last week and you were in Hawaii, but uh, did you get to read it? Did you have any takeaways? Hit me. 
Um, first of all, it's a great piece. I believe it was J.R. Moringer. I hope I'm saying that right. He wrote it. Uh, very, I'd, very good access. I don't uh, know how to say his name either. I believe it's J.R. Moringer, uh, but he wrote one of my favorite books of all time, uh, The Tender Bar. Uh, it's a memoir, um, but I really enjoyed that book, and I've enjoyed a lot of his NBA writing. He more so like 10 years ago, but he did. He had a great feature with LeBron. He did something cool with Kobe. He's a great writer, so people should check it out. Yeah, there's no no doubt about it. I mean, the writing quality was superb. The access was great. Kevin's honesty was on point like you expect. I think he had, I mean, some major shots fired at Oklahoma City and Sam Presti. I think if I was those guys, I'd be reading that and saying, come on, bro, really? Like, this is what it's about? You know, you're starting a new chapter in Brooklyn and we're going back here. I think that would have frustrated me if I was them. But I, I just would suggest everyone read it. But I'm curious because it really felt like the main point of the article was buried all the way at the end. I don't know if I'm reaching here. I don't know if I'm twisting here a little bit, Andrew, but I'm just going to read you the closing bit of the uh, story. Spoiler Uh alert for everybody who hasn't read it. It goes, first, he needs to find a woman who can handle this crazy life. He used to think that wasn't such a tall order, but as with so many things, his thinking on that has evolved. I thought this life was pretty simple, Durant says, but it's not as simple as I thought it was. And so it just closes on this note of loneliness and personal emptiness. And I mean, clearly this was like a very arranged and set up story with the New York publication heading to Brooklyn. Here's the next chapter, all of that. For that to be the takeaway image, I thought was very, very brave by the writer. Um, and I just wonder, like, if you're Kevin reading that, are you like, wait a minute, what? Like, this, this is where it's going. I need to get a girl? Like, that's how you're going to paint me? <laughs> uh, so from that standpoint, uh, you don't see that very often. And I think it's also interesting that so many of Kevin's peers are married, right? LeBron James, yeah. uh, Steph Curry, kind of the list goes on and on there. Um, when you've talked about happiness or fulfillment with regard to Kevin Durant over these last couple of years, like... That part has always been kind of left out uh, of the conversation, right? And I know Royce Young from uh, ESPN, when Kevin left uh, Oklahoma City for Golden State, he took a lot of heat because he mentioned that there had been, uh, you know, kind of a relationship that Kevin had been in personally and that he had, you know, it kind of ended it, uh, you know, somewhat abruptly. And he was sort of trying to, I don't know, equate that or at least mention it, you know, with this idea of him leaving Oklahoma City. And Royce was just like absolutely pilloried for that. Oh, don't bring in into his personal life, into it and all of that. But I'm reading these graphs and I feel like, first of all, did it just get through everybody? Did nobody read to the end to kind of get that part? Because that seems like a pretty big story. Like here's Kevin Durant, most eligible bachelor. Is that like what we're putting it forward here? <laughs> well, look, there are worse messages to broadcast the world when you move to New York City. Uh, but it's a fair takeaway. It's sort of what you're alluding to. I don't know. Like I read, I read that article and it's just so clear that he's allowing a vocal minority to distort the way he perceives the world um you know like with the thunder stuff i don't think that the thunder organization harbor or at least the majority of people in that organization harbor any like 
intense ill will toward Katie. And I don't think it's fair to to look back and be like, everyone there was fake the entire time. And if Katie's doing that, he's probably making a mistake that he'll eventually come to regret or, or at least correct down the line. And um, I don't know. I mean, so much of his stuff just boils down to being like, look, like read less of the internet. And I, I will say my wife, like often just says like put the phone away you'll be happier and she's always right and so maybe that's one of the things that jr is alluding to (laughs) so your takeaway here is that the advice is that katie needs to get him and alice is that what is that what you're saying it wouldn't be the worst thing in the world but i won't pretend to be an expert on what katie needs i do hope that he whatever he's looking for he finds in brooklyn because there's just a lot of angst in that interview where he's talking about the NBA world and the Warriors offense. I did think it was nice to see him be honest in that interview because I thought earlier in the summer he talked a little bit about the Warriors and he was a little bit more diplomatic. But in that Wall Street Journal piece, he was pretty open about what a lot of us saw both publicly and then heard behind the scenes. Like, He wasn't happy with Kerr through most of last season. He was frustrated with the offense. He didn't feel like he was a part of the big four, the core four Warriors. And um, I thought it was interesting to see him kind of spell it out that way. Yeah, it was very revealing. I mean, I do kind of wish, though, it didn't seem like the value that Golden State brought to his life has necessarily stuck with him. And I wonder if more time passes, if it hadn't ended on that ugly injury, if maybe he would be able to see some of it because the part to me that gets lost, and I think it even gets lost to Kevin, is they brought the best basketball out of him in those first two finals he was in. Mm -hmm. This guy was playing unreal basketball. Such a high level, such beautiful decision-making, such effortless scoring, doing all the right things on defense. I mean, he was playing on a level he never played in Oklahoma City. All that talent did what it was supposed to do. It made his life easier. It set him up for success. And for him to look back on this era and just be like, oh yeah, I'm sick of Steve Kerr preaching joy all the time. I'm sick of moving the basketball. I just want to go one-on-one. Like, that's really missing the point. (laughs) There were much better takeaways uh, or more balanced or nuanced, uh, you know, memories that I think he should be having from this experience. Because look, as we've said, this is probably going down as the peak of his career, right? I mean, we're going to look back, I think, in 10 years and say those first two finals where he was a finals MVP, where he outduels LeBron James, um, that was the peak. That was the best that we ever saw him play at, um, you know, in part because of the injury, in part because of just their obscene collection of talent. Maybe yeah. people didn't appreciate or respect it at the time, but objectively, from a pure basketball standpoint, that's what it was. And I don't know. I just don't want to hear him sound bitter. That's all. Because I think that there was a lot of positives to, to, from that uh, from that time too. Yeah, uh, I agree with you. And um, I'm not ready to say it was the peak. I think that the Nets are not quite as hopeless as we've Ooh. sort of implied at various times, whatever it comes Andrew. up. Like, look, healthy KD, if he gets back to 90% of what he was, 95% of what he was, he and Kyrie can do some real damage in the East, and they're a trade away from adding someone like Bradley Beal. Like, 
the potential is there in Brooklyn, and we shouldn't undersell that piece of all this. Um, I, I, but, now I'm wondering if I need Alice to tell me to put down my phone, because <laughs> when I see these tweets from the Brooklyn Nets saying, like, hello to seven, and he's got that black jersey on, it just makes me nauseous, man. I don't know. Like, the whole experience, I'm out. I'm just completely out. Look, I'm just glad to see Kevin Durant in a basketball uniform. I'm, I'm honestly exhausted by the conversation about what he's saying in interviews, what it means, what we've learned about him, what assumptions were always false. Like I just watching Kevin Durant play basketball is awesome. I was watching highlights of him drop 51 against Kawhi Leonard back in November last night. Uh, don't ask me why, but like, he, KD at his best is so much more fun than 99.9% of basketball players on earth. And so I just want to see him in a uniform. I don't care if it's number seven. I will. It will be difficult to forget that he announced his jersey change uh, on 7-7 at 7 o'clock p.m. As if that was like some bombshell thing. He's clearly already uh, <laughs> visiting the church of Kyrie. But either way, let's just watch these guys play basketball at some point. Yeah, I mean, let me double back to one thing you were saying about you know letting people distort, uh, distort his view of the world. I think you're right. I mean, he has really tried to paint himself, and I think he truly believes this, as a guy who is on a journey, as mm-hmm. a wanderer, as someone who's going cr- kind of from stop to stop and picking up new bits of information, learning more about himself. And I'll be 100% honest, Andrew, I relate to that entirely. You know what I mean? Like, look what I do with my summers. I go out to New Mexico by myself to, like, learn how to... <laughs> Like walk through caves with like Navajo leaders, right? Dude, um, that's that's your post summer league regimen. The serial killer drive through six states and five national parks. That's what you do. So I relate a hundred percent to his mission statement. I'm not trying to make light of it. I truly deeply believe in it. I think that travel experiences it definitely makes you a better person. It hones your perspectives. Um, yeah, it pulls better things out of you. But it just stands in stark contrast to the obsession with the phone and the obsession with the people who are going to just, you know, anonymous people giving you negative feedback Mm -hmm. constantly. You're never going to find yourself in your Twitter DMS. It's not going to happen. Right. Well, and, and here's the the phone down. Alice is right. I I think Alice (laughs) might be the only saint we've ever had on this podcast. I don't think there's been one negative word said about Alice in the last five years. And I think that's probably a pretty positive and healthy sign for our Uh show. Uh, and for your life in general. Yes. I think she's got the true knowledge here. There's no question that she is wiser than both you and I. And as far as KD is concerned, I think it is really healthy to be searching and curious and willing to embrace new environments. Like I, I have no problem with him spending three years in Golden State and then saying, you know what, I want to go try something else. This isn't necessarily what I was looking for. Um but it's, it's a different thing to be searching and curious and then sort of resentful along the way with that journey and, um, and kind of bitter when, uh, and, and it's, it's, I mean, it's not a problem, but it's just kind of unfortunate. So hopefully he figures it out. Um, and, uh, and I think, you know, Brooklyn will give him that opportunity. It's a whole new world and he and Coffee Shop are going to be taking on the, the league together. Um, are you buying stock in Spencer Dinwiddie's newly securitized contract? 
I don't really have a problem one way or the other with Dinwiddie. I think their problems are bigger than Dinwiddie, to be honest. You know, I think it's good that they got the ownership sale and the new executives in place. I mean, those guys, to me, honestly, I don't know a lot about them. They sound like heavy hitters. And so, uh, you know, from an overall standpoint of like skepticism about what is this organization going to be like? Are they really committed? Uh, You know, are they going to be able to be a deserving platform for a player of Kevin Durant's stature? I think they're making some pretty important, uh, you know, moves in that direction. Mm-hmm. But I still keep coming back to some of these just like nickel dime things, like bringing in DeAndre Jordan. Come on, it's just buddy ball. I can't get past it. That's why I'm just disgusted with the whole thing. Maybe I'll come back around once Kevin's actually back on the court. But I don't. I mean, seeing him in the jersey was nice. But like I said, it didn't really move me because we're so far away from when he should be coming back. Uh, I just kind of had this flat feeling like, oh, yeah, that's right. He did throw his career away to go play with Kyrie. Fantastic. I got to wait a year for it. <laughs> Look, man, I absolutely love that this is going to torture you at least once every 72 hours <laughs> for probably the next four years. Um, I'm going to enjoy yep. every step of the way. Uh but hey, Andrew, we've been talking a lot about like relationships and marriages and all this. And there was another story that came out today that really ground my gears. I guess I'm kind of on one today. I don't know if that's true or not. Maybe you've sensed it or not. Yeah. Um, tell me if you saw this. Arash Markazi from the LA Times had a nice in-depth story with Doc Rivers explaining how they got uh, Kawhi Leonard and Paul George. Lots of just incredible details. But he slipped this in near the top. As guests enjoyed cocktails, the Clippers coach laughed and said he was done drinking for a while after watching his daughter, Callie, get married to Dallas Mavericks guard Seth Curry last weekend in Malibu. It was very expensive, Doc Rivers said. I have to be the first coach to ever throw a wedding for an NBA player. Like, I don't get that. I don't think I should have paid. I really don't. But it was fantastic. Now... Does that rub you the wrong way at all? Here's the thing. You sent me this quote and said, I have a Doc Rivers wedding take. Please include it in the rundown. And reading that quote, I'm really curious what your take is. I'm not sure what is supposed to rub me the wrong way there. Should I be mad at Seth Curry for not paying? Should I be mad at Doc Rivers for complaining? Should I be mad that I'm a broke boy who can't afford to get married in Malibu where, <laughs> look, of all the things in that paragraph, I'm sure that a wedding in Malibu was, in fact, very, very expensive. So I believe Doc Rivers. But uh, tell me tell me what direction you want to take this. Okay, I think it's pretty simple. Most of it was okay. But the part where he says, I don't think I should have paid You don't get to do that, Andrew. You don't get to pay for a wedding and then Mm. complain about it publicly to the Los Angeles Times. Look, Doc Rivers paid for the food. He played for the entertainment. I'm sure he paid for the open bar, the beautiful setting in Malibu, like you're mentioning. I'm sure there was sand involved. I bet it was beautiful. He did not pay to steal Seth Curry's dignity. You know what I mean? Like, you just don't get to come out here (laughs) and say, yeah, you're an NBA player. I paid for your wedding. I'm not happy about it. And I'm airing you out like two days after the wedding happened. You don't think that's a little bit of like a bro code violation, like man to man? Like, I look at this. Hmm. If I'm Seth Curry, first of all, he's reading this on his honeymoon because people are sending this to him. I promise you that. I could not think of anything I would rather do less on my honeymoon 
than read my new father-in-law call me cheap, even though I'm an NBA player. And you know that Doc Rivers insisted on paying for the wedding in the first place because I, I think he's probably a stand-up oh, guy. So I think if you're Seth Curry, the move here is to just write a check. I mean, don't you just have to say, Callie, how much did this cost? And then send Doc Rivers a check for the full thing and insist that he cash it because otherwise you're just letting him just kind of sun you in a very, I don't know, very awkward, tacky kind of way. Yes. Well, I think in general, that's the correct move. If you have the money, spend your own money and keep the parents uh, as marginalized as possible when you're planning a wedding. That's definitely what Alice and I did. If we're, we absorbed more of the cost so that we would have to deal with our parents less. And, uh, and that strategy paid off. So maybe, I mean, it's obviously too late for Seth Curry to do that, but maybe he could kind of like... Um, mute the resentment here. It is customary. <laughs> it is customary for the bride's family to pay for the wedding. So I think that's how this happened with Doc. Um, granted, yeah, that's is it, also is it like customary for them to complain about it in one of the leading <laughs> newspapers. <laughs> well, first of all, I think that's all from like a bygone era um, and like the patriarchy. So I don't know how common that is now. But the Doc thing, I enjoy the quote because this is Doc Rivers being an authentic dad. I think every dad who has ever paid for a wedding throughout the history of humanity has reacted exactly this way. Where rather than say like, (laughs) it was a great Saturday afternoon, we had a lot of fun, blah, blah, blah. My cherished daughter found the love of her life. I'm so happy for Callie. No, everybody reacts by grumbling like, well, I mean, I paid an arm and a leg, so it better have been a good day. I'm not even sure why I had to pay all that. I really don't know. But yeah, like it was a fantastic (laughs) afternoon. It was great. We all had a lot of fun. And so I think that's about as dad as it gets. And I'm glad to see that fame and fortune hasn't stripped Doc Rivers of that basic element of fatherhood. I think if I was Seth Curry, what I would do, I would get like one of those custom checks where you could put your own design on it. And Mm -hmm. I would actually get like an image of, say, maybe Steph Curry shooting three-pointers or uh, against the Clippers during the playoffs. Or maybe remember when he almost made Chris Paul fall over during that one playoff series? Maybe just like screen print an image of Steph Curry just ripping Doc Rivers' heart out onto the check and then just cut the full check. I mean, I understand he just signed like (laughs) a... four-year, I think $32 million contract with the Mavericks. Maybe he can get an advance from Cuban on it, um, you know, depending on how expensive this wedding was. But, I mean, come on. Like, you can't let him do that. Wow. Well, okay. I mean, Captain, <laughs> Captain Accountability has spoken on this one. Seth Curry, it's time to step up. Be I'm a man. Saying, You're is- almost 30. <laughs> You've got $30 well, you million got the- dollars in the bank. <laughs> You've got the Curry clan and you've got the Rivers clan merging, right? Basketball royalty. This is like two royal families, uh, you know, like, you know, the German leaders marrying the British leaders. Absolutely. It's a huge deal. And I mean, Doc is flexing on the entire Currys. I'm just saying, Seth, step up for your whole family. This isn't just about you. This is about all of your good names. Okay. So two questions at the end here. Actually, just one. Twitter user Fraught Takes checked in. In the in the wake of our most recent podcast, and he said, "Come on, Andrew Sharp and Ben Golliver. Kyle Kuzma is clearly cousin Greg slash Gregory." 
So Ben, what do you think? Because I did some soul searching in the wake of our succession discussion on the last podcast, and I was a little bit of, a little bit frustrated with where we landed on that one. What are your thoughts? Well, I, I gave you the whole rundown of all the characters, I believe, uh, the various Lakers who uh, fall in line with the succession. Uh, should I just read that to you or what? Sure, you can read it. <laughs> okay, I think Logan Roy, the patriarch, uh, is actually LeBron James. Okay, I think when you're talking about the true power center of the Lakers, it's LeBron. You talk about some of okay. the uh, unpredictable behavior, throwing people under the bus every <laughs> once in a while. I think there's a, a lot of parallels that you could be uh, you can draw there. Um, I would say Kendall uh, would be Rob Palinka. Um, oh little, boy, there's that just a little. Good. There's a little quiet there. You're not always maybe necessarily getting the full story. Sharp elbows behind the scenes. Uh, definitely, you know, skilled in, in the uh, the art of backroom dealing. But there's something up, right? Well, <laughs> yeah, skilled, but also kind of lacking in some in some key areas as well. Okay, uh, I think Roman would be Rajon Rondo. Um, I think that's self-explanatory. I mean, just. Very strange character overall, hard to read, hard to pin down. You would not want him in charge of the business in basically any situation. Um, I think Connor Roy, who you compared to me, I believe, on the last episode for being a little bit out there. I actually think he's Jim Buss. Uh, you remember mm. he would always just get distracted during the important meetings by watching uh, you know, horse races on his iPad, <laughs> things like that. Just, <laughs> A lot of Jim Buss vibes there. As I mentioned, Tom is Dwight Howard, just the snively aspect to him. Um, I still think Kyle Kuzma is Shiv personally because I think he's pretty skilled. You know, Shiv's been hitting a wall a little bit recently. That could be coming here for Kyle Kuzma this season. Um, but I, I do think that one checks out. In okay. terms of Cousin Greg or Greg the Egg, as I like to call him, <laughs> to me, it's JaVale McGee. I mean, if you're talking about just a guy who is like seven inches too tall, very goofy, always just, you know, talking about jug life and weird things like JaVale McGee does. I mean, there's a lot of parallels, quirkiness with Greg the Egg. What do you think? That's my rundown. I, I disagree with fraught takes. Well, I was, I was really frustrated. That's a good rundown, but here's where we failed, okay? First of all, Kuzma is Cousin Greg. He's cloying and desperate to be included in the family, and yet he's so transparent about it all that it's, like, weirdly a little bit endearing. And, I mean, like, that to me is both Greg and Kuzma, and that was a no-brainer. Shiv, I think, is too much of a central character to work as, like, a Kuzma analog. Uh, so that's number one. Number two, though, I just felt like an idiot in the hours after that uh, podcast thinking like, you know what, like it was sitting right there. All the bus children are kind of direct parallels to the to the succession kids. And that's a little bit mean. So but like, I don't know that that if we're looking for parallels to the NBA in succession, it was kind of staring us right in the face. We don't need to make LeBron, Logan, Roy. But, I mean, Kendall, Shiv. Uh, I think you're I mean, living in the past, man. It's a new era of Lakers, okay? <laughs> Unfortunately, we're deep into this, like, you know, Jeannie runs things era. And I think she's sacrificed a lot of the power to LeBron and Rich. And, mm. you know, we've seen how that's played out here the last, uh, 
year or two. So I, I'm not sure, like maybe at one time, maybe five years ago, you could talk me into the bus children's, but these guys are, I mean, they have been like suing each other. So I definitely, you know, understand from that aspect, but yeah, I'm not sure that, uh, the current state of the Lakers reflects what you're trying to say. I also think it's a little bit eye-opening, by the way, that I could not find an analog for Anthony Davis. So I don't know what that says about his long-term future with the Lakers. Are we writing him out after season one? You know, is he going to be a recurring character uh, next year? Does he find his identity finally, uh, you know, within this uh, soap opera? I think we'll have to wait and see, but I could not (laughs) find a single person who made me think of Anthony Davis in any way. Well, I don't know. Uh, the bottom line is Succession has really carried us through these dark months without NBA basketball. You and I have been texting about it pretty regularly. I truly can't believe what a great show it is. It's like kind of shocking how both hilarious and I'm into it for the drama too. Um, maybe AD, who is what? I forget the name. The actress's name is J. Smith Cameron, but he, she is Logan's uh general counsel oh jerry yeah jerry ad could be jerry she's competent and then so is ad didn't they call her mole woman on the last episode (laughs) (laughs) quiet i I don't know um he's he's the wallpaper uh yeah i don't know we have to workshop that one a little bit harder jerry's great though well underrated yeah, uh, across the board, the characters are so vivid and the writing is so sharp. I laugh about the um, my favorite scene of the season so far was Tom interviewing that guy about Mein Kampf and saying, like, hey, careful, we're, careful, we're there, careful, 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 careful. <laughs> were there Easter eggs you missed there the first time? That's my favorite line of the season, but... Either way, uh, go watch it if you haven't watched it. It's a little tough to recommend to people because, like, there are no redeeming characters on the show. No, the it's not. It's a four. great show. I, no, everybody should be watching it. People who don't watch it are missing out. Also, in that scene, though, well, the dog's name is spelled differently. <laughs> oh, my God. Yes. <laughs> it's just so good. Um, so, yeah. Watch Succession until NBA basketball comes back. And uh, we are, I'm excited to get rolling here, Ben. So we're going to be back next week. And um, yeah. Yeah, I'm excited to see which blog rips off our idea and does Lakers as Succession. It's coming within three weeks. It's not a challenge to all of you bloggers out there. But look, let's just be real. Someone's going to do it. Andrew, they can reach us, openfloormail at gmail.com openfloormail at gmail.com I hope all the listeners out there don't stare at the sun, follow the light it's that simple, that's how you should be living your life check us out on Apple Podcasts by searching for Open Floor, that's two words once you find our page, scroll down it will say rate and review, tap five stars it's just that easy, it helps us spread the word and build some momentum as we get closer and closer to training camp, media day and all that good stuff. As Andrew mentioned, lots of heaters from Hawaii up on Instagram at Ben Oliver. I think Andrew's on there too. He still doesn't post. We're working on it. I'm sure the promise that you've made to us is, is coming, right? At some point, yeah. you're going to start posting more on Instagram. One day we'll get into it. I promise. Until that day, Andrew, I will talk to you. All right, man. Take it easy. Whoa.